Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, greetings, everyone, and I am just so excited today to be talking with the wonderful Matt Hart from New Zealand, who, in a nutshell, (laughs) what I picked up so far from your amazing life is in one of your films, you describe yourself as a forest ranger who became a global innovator. And there was a lot of other stories and lifetimes in between. I know from water ski teacher, and then you studied marine biology, and then you went into the film industry. But as I understand it, your main and pioneering approach to brand and fan innovation really has assisted world-leading brands like BBC, Cisco and Spotify, to American Idol, Warner Music and UNICEF to really increase their fan base, to increase their community base globally. And more recently, of course, now, and I think that's how we came to know each other, is really in this whole conversation of how you can use your extraordinary skills of communication and creativity to activate and ignite sustainable development goals that help to make fans of of world-changing brands. And that would seem to be a very important catalyst for our conversation on compassion here. So big welcome to you, Matt. Oh, Chloe, it's just wonderful to be talking with you. (laughs) You too. (laughs) And, And what really touches me about you is that clearly your whole life, you've allowed every experience you've been through to create and to constellate this maverick mission. I would just Love to hear you share with us more about that and and how compassion is an inevitable outcome of your life's mission. Well, firstly, Chloe, thank you so much for inviting me on. This is this is really special to be sharing this with you. And I, I guess the first thing to say is I've I've learned and sort of developed a way of seeing the world, which looks at the world through creativity and innovation. I'd like to say, I'd like to say that it was more planned than it is. But I think uh, I, I live with and manage higher degrees of restlessness uh-huh. that have always sort of had me want to learn, really curious about understanding the world. And I think we'll come and talk about that because when you mention compassion, mm-hmm. I, I hear understanding and we can talk about who taught me that word. Lovely. Specifically being understanding company is the way it was uh, described for me. 
mm. how we can how we can be that for others. We can even be that for ourselves. And then I sort of this this real curious, restless urge to learn and grow had me do things. And and I was just sort of of the character that once I knew how to do something, I was restless to go and build upon it. So I would finish up something and then head off and go do something else. That sort of approach to life, if you can call it that, found its place in this domain of creativity and innovation and sort of project work and client work. Because my day job, I guess, has been commissioned by organizations to innovate the solving of a problem, whatever that problem looked like. And of course, once you've solved that problem, I was happy to leave them and go on to the next one. And so sort of develop my own expertise, my own capacity for creativity, my own, what we call it, capabilities to do innovation, Mm -hmm. and then be very diverse about the sectors I would go and do that. So what I find really curious about, you know, the next generations coming through and what's called their multi-hyphenate approach to work. Mm. So they do a bit of this, they do a bit of that, they have these side hustles because, you know, it's a zero-hour contract world. They're sort of gathering a series of skills and experiences in the hope that they might find what my friend James calls their North star, you know, their real purpose and that all those things might come together into what I would say is their truth or their calling, or we might say what they were born to live. And, And I've been doing that ever since I started work. So I've almost been a sort of prototype for that approach, but always through this lens of what I came to see was creativity and innovation. James Hillman uh, spoke about, he wrote a whole book about the soul's code. No matter how absolutely horrifying or challenging our childhoods have been, he really turned the whole sort of psychotherapeutic model on its head by saying, you know, sometimes it's the most radically difficult childhoods and upbringings that can actually catalyze the soul's code in a way that perhaps a more compromised or just very passive upbringing might not have achieved. I really, I I 100% believe that and I struggle with that. Because I know in my own story, without those early troubles and trials and challenges I had to overcome, Mm. I may not have developed the resilience and the insight and the growth to then go and do the things I went on to do. But of course, I had my own children. Like I'm an unconventional person. I'd love to, if my children fit with that, I'd love them to be unconventional in this world. I think it makes for a much more interesting life. But of course, I would do everything to protect them from some of the horrors I went through. So this idea of character building, uh, I find it really challenging. Oh, boy, it's so challenging. But certainly uh, in my work, without that challenge, without conflict, there is no music, for example. No, of course. No, that's right. And isn't it fascinating that your compassionate nature actually has used your skillful right-left brain formation to create these kind of massive communities where music is absolutely the heart of culture and is being celebrated. Because obviously there's nowhere more inspiring for, for young people right now than to be like, you know, the WOMAD festivals with Glastonbury, there's untold numbers of music festivals. And the soul is here for its own joy. Oh, absolutely. And we forget that. And look at what the hell's going on out there. <laughs> you know? I know. And, you know, it's, you know, we sort of talk about this, don't we, that the that the sustainability movement, let's, let's say that, and not to lump everyone into it, right. but this idea that, that those who are, who are really motivated, mm. who inwardly identify with the challenges our planet face and know the data, know the science, yes. that you just can't communicate to everyone from that point of knowledge and truth because they just won't engage with it. Right. And so you start to look at, you know, if I start to look through that through an innovation lens or, or certainly a fandom lens about how 
we can connect that and engage people in the solutions that are there and, and could be activated. Yes. You can't do it by scaring. You have to attract them to it. You have to joyfully have them be part of this yes. because that kind of connection to those solutions is going to provide everything they're inadvertently looking for. Meaning, purpose, community, love, care, compassion, understanding. Those are the things we really need, not the so-called benefits that a brand or product might promise you. Well, I love your description of compassion as understanding company. I'd love to hear you speak more about that because you mentioned that that was where, where you first learned about understanding because it would seem as if the compassion, it has to come from within, this understanding of it. So how did that happen for you? Who was the, who was the inspiration? Well, uh, yeah, and I don't often talk about this. He is now uh, sadly died or or actually I'm, I'm grateful he's died but I don't feel him around anymore I'm pretty sure he's uh, that was his last life and he's done he's sort of <laughs> he's graduated so to speak his name was Ray mm. and he he said to me some really important things one was that if we come to know ourselves we can come to know others and I believe that's true mm. he described his his own philosophy his way of living was what he called understanding company and that we can grow to be understanding company for others. Mm. And that started with him seeing me as a troubled youth, struggling with drugs and alcohol, losing my way, mm. losing my way quite profoundly. You know, it was a proper dark night of the soul sort of experience mm-hmm. in my late teens where I had had the experience of family examples of alcoholism. Mm. And I'd come out of that and, was struggling with my own. Mm. And I wanted to, you know, personally, I wanted to stop drinking. I didn't want my life to be about alcohol. And so I thought I would do what every alcoholic does as they start to try and manage and control it. Mm. And at that young age, I was consciously flawed and broken by realizing that I couldn't, I couldn't do it on my own. Mm-hmm. And through serendipitous events, uh, what I choose to call my own, uh, own understanding of spirit, mm. I ended up meeting this guy called Ray. Mm. And Ray was living a sober life and he had been that way for many, many years. And he saw that I was in trouble and I, and he invited me to have basically cups of coffee and conversation over coffee. Mm. And so started Chloe, a beautiful 25 year relationship. Uh, Him as my mentor, my sort of Mm. surrogate dad, Mm. a sponsor, if you will, who showed me the completely profound depths of compassion, but he called it understanding company. Mm. And so that was my first take on, this thing called compassion, where he understood where I was at. He, he saw parts of his own story in me and knew that he could help me, and he did. Good heavens, that is such, I'm really, really touched by that. It's beautiful, beautiful description. I can really hear the, the depth of the connection, and also the alchemy and the simple power, the transformative power of that quality of friendship. It was like a real brotherhood. It was, uh, and, and also the old school godfather um, approach to awaken the spirit in someone else and, and how try and point them in the right direction. And I was really struggling. I was really struggling with finding my own path and my own truth. And, and, and I know your profound work around, you know, helping people find their voice through song. Mm. He was the first one who gave me this thought because he could see I was struggling. And he said, you know, Matt, All you have to do to live and create the life you want to have is to learn to walk to the beat of your own drum. And that was the first time I'd heard this idea that there was some sort of truth within. 
Mm. And almost like my adventure in this life was to see if I could tap into it and carry on to the beat that was true for me within and make it without. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And no matter what struggles I was overcoming, I never lost that belief that that was sort of the adventure of this life from when I was 20 onwards. That's really awesome because actually understanding the principles of rhythm, you know, every bit as much as harmony is absolutely critical, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, that brings in the whole for us uh, and for, for our children to really, and for all of us, for humanity, to understand how to respect and to honor the principles of rhythm and timing and boundaries and harmony and pitch and volume. And, you know, obviously I I sort of just see and hear life and hear people's voices through these principles. But what you're saying is so key. I remember the other day I was just working with somebody who literally was so overwhelmed by life that he literally had to just keep walking around the room till he could find the beat of his feet. And once he could really connect with the beat in his feet and the rhythm, his rhythm, not anybody else's, as you say, that really started to dissolve and disappear the overwhelm. And so what you're talking about here now, of course, is the absolute essential need for embodiment. Embodiment, not only knowing these values, understanding them, but really embodying them, right? 100% because I I mean this is it sounds like this story gets really dark and it does sort of get darker for a while I was a young guy in New Zealand of course I'm in London now but I was in New Zealand living an outdoor lifestyle yeah I was a surfer and and um, I was at university and then well I started yeah like like you said I started being a forest ranger I um, yeah I loved being out in nature and then I almost like a lot of young kids in New Zealand being a very much a sporting outdoor Mm. I, I wanted to be I thought I was going to be a competitive athlete, some kind of athlete. Mm. I stopped drinking, sobered up my life, started to get together, and then I developed this terrible arthritic condition in my feet. Mm. So I was literally flawed. And then when Ray told me, talking about walking to the beat of my own drum, all of these things, like you were just saying, the embodiment, I realized that I wasn't, you know, all the metaphysical cues about what goes on with your feet and how you can stand and be grounded yes. and, and that they carry us forward in our path. I, I, it all just came together that that was the driving thing that helped me get through those dark times. Even though I was in a lot of pain physically, I just pushed myself on because I believed that that rhythm would eventually come through. So what happened? How did that impact your feet over time? Did the arthritis abate? What well, it went, yeah, it got really, I mean, to tell a long story short, it, it pushed me into alternative medicine, self-care, meditation, you know, all yoga, all that sort of alternative healing world. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the conventional approach to those sort of, let's say, diseases mm. would have destroyed my liver. Absolutely. And so I, and I had a, a metaphysical experiment, our, our good friend, Andrew Harvey, I was telling him the other day, which because I, I have you guys on a, 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 about this whole woo, the, you know, the woo woo nature <laughs> and um, as slightly tongue in cheek, the story goes, I had this hospital experience where this, where this doctor completely flawed me with the drugs they wanted to put me on. I was in a lot of pain and quite crippled. Mm. And, but the way I saw it was that my toes were curling up going, not this path, sort of too scared to walk this potential path. Right. I went back to the university flat we were in and my noisy head, everything was always so noisy in my head. Mm. It was completely calm. I was sort of flawed. And this butterfly swooped in and landed on my knee. 
and this beautiful monarch butterfly was staring at me. And I, this is going to sound pretty out there, but I literally heard it say to me, the journey for you now is to become as beautiful as this, to metamorphosize mm-hmm. um, and to go through that transformative process, whatever it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It was so powerful, Chloe. I signed up to it. I said, yep, whatever it takes. He's like, who says yes? <laughs> yeah, that was the moment. And so I, 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 that forced me or pushed me or drew me deeper and deeper into a much more unconventional life. So my 20s were about both a search for healing that uh, really drove me on, but also as I inadvertently started to get better, the less I worried about the physical nature of my malady the more I took care of my spirit and the experiences in the world Mm. started to do, you know, I progressed from forestry and then into marine sciences. And then I got into uh, the film industry and then I got into branding and design and outdoor clothing. And then I ended up surfing my way through Indonesia on the way to London. Then I just, I just embraced it all and just went on this adventure. And it was at that time and with Ray's council, Mm. I was sort of a little bit manically, searching for something to do and a reason to do it. That was my motivation. What you're also reminding me, of course, is how there is this absence of wisdom eldership in our culture, you know, mm. you know because of the breakdown in community. I, I think we have lost something of this idea. You know, one of the greatest natural resources we have is the, elder, the global elder community and all their wisdom and experience. Yeah. You know, we are such a youth-obsessed culture. I work with some of these brands around the world and, and, and I've done both. I've, I've, I've become a bit of an elder expert, actually, working in health, healthy aging and um, aging technologies mm-hmm. and, and the way they can really service and help more and more people to thrive as they age. Mm-hmm. But, you t- but you talk to lots of young startups and young people and, and even people in large organizations who are, who are managing brands and leading brands, mm-hmm. not that interested because it's all about the next generation, the youth generation, the next loyal customer bases that are coming through. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the field earlier. One of, our, one of our key ideas to ignite this field was to pair elders who have all the wisdom and experience with youth activism who are bringing that experience to life right now. Oh, boy, I, I am so glad to hear that. And I think that's one of the ways we can bridge it and overcome the sort of youth. It's either youth or the people are too old. Right. But actually, can't we create bridges or, 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 or use the field Absolutely. to pass and share experiences? Yeah. That is so exciting because I tell you, I've, I've been sort of approached, uh, as I'm sure you have, by these absolutely sweet people in Extinction Rebellion, for example. Yes, yes. And that's interesting how that is actually just sort of naturally forming this completely cross-generational communities everywhere. But, and what concerns me there and what I want to talk with them about and in this conversation primarily right now is the need and the call for training, skills training within these fast-growing rebellion movements because what they're rebelling for is absolutely right on. And at the same time, what concerns me is that style of uprising really requires this core company of understanding or understanding company that you're speaking about. Well, that's, look, I, I, I 100% agree with you. I, I think this Extinction Rebellion are doing, have done a brilliant job, again, of awareness raising and getting it back on the radar. Exactly. Parking up in Oxford Circus and, and the marching around the different towns and centres and igniting globally. Mm. It's brilliant because it puts it back on the radar. 
Oh, yeah. But, but of course, you know, I talk about, and you, you mentioned there, this idea of skills and behaviours and processes. We need to move to a place of modern activism. Mm. Not that Extinction Rebellion is about this, but the old activism from last century that you could march down the street with petitions mm. or you could sign, you know, online petitions and everyone would have them in. Remember the Iraq war, millions of people marching and they went to war anyway. Right. So I think that uh, if we segue to now and what's required and the urgency with which we need to come about. Yes. Uh, and make change happen. I talk about modern activism and that activism is actually today an act of innovation. And so what is innovation? Innovation at its most basic is to create a better idea than currently exists mm -hmm. and to make that idea happen. Yes. And so when you look at the urgency of, the, uh, of climate heating and the crisis and all the consequences of that, Yes. We all are responsible for getting behind the ideas and solutions that can start to mitigate that and solve that. Mm -hmm. And for me, the, the way I see the world is that's a challenge of innovation. Therefore, it's a challenge of creativity. Therefore, it's a challenge of skills, processes, behaviors, learning mm -hmm. around how to be creative in the context of innovation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I go all the way back to having tried to help organizations start to move in this place. And we are doing lots of that through the sustainable development goals right. and using those goals as a map for renewed purpose and how you know business can be a force for good. Right. That's all brilliant. But actually, my own passions really lead me to the next generation. So kids and teens yes. and about how we can future proof them. Mm -hmm. to help them thrive, come what may, mm -hmm. because they will inherit a lot of these problems that aren't yet being addressed. What is it that can set them up to really future-proof them for that? Do you know I come at it? It's creative problem-solving. Mm -hmm. It's the behaviors of creativity, so curiosity, empathy, collaboration, resilience. Mm -hmm. And then what you find at the heart of that, Chloe, which we're talking about today, you call it compassion, I call it understanding, but actually in the lens or in the context of innovation, it's empathy, mm -hmm. the capacity to understand others, mm -hmm. the capacity to understand the context of problems, mm -hmm. the conditions in which those problems are occurring, everything from data, knowledge, intelligence, audiences, people, uh, systems, processes, mm -hmm. and then empathize in such a way with that problem. So you're almost being not just compassionate with people, you're compassionately understanding the nature of that problem. And in that compassionate understanding, you will identify and intuit the insight that can unlock and inspire a new idea or a new solution that can go and solve it. I love that. I really love that because in our work with the voice and the voice work and so on, what we're doing is linking the intuitive heart with the discerning mind. And that's uh, what and that is a really number one skill that has to be learnt, isn't it? You know, because obviously we look at our education system. Where is that to be found? We're just still in this archaic Victorian values education. Oh, look, we haven't, you know, I've got two kids, as you know, they're nine and six. Yeah. And, and, and my passion to do something for kids and creativity was ignited by both working with a client in San Francisco, Cisco, mm. and looking, coming home to my own kids and mapping all of that, both what's been and what's needed. And you go, our current education system was designed in the 19th century. Yeah. And what it does inadvertently is it educates young people away from their creativity. That's what it's designed to do. 
Right. And so, you know, we need, we need, and there are, there's, there's emergent new ways of, of doing this, but actually we need it for all. Exactly. Not right. everyone can go to a Steiner school or a Montessori school or, or, or home school. I've always been ideas for all, creativity for all. And so, yeah, working on ways. So if we start with kids. Yes. You know, kids are already hugely imaginative. But what, you're, what we're giving them is an experience of applying that innate imagination mm-hmm. through the simplest of creative problem-solving processes. So we take what we do in innovation, and this is what we've been doing with over the, I've just been prototyping this for sort of the last five years, actually, and boiling it down to, you know, a lot of enterprises fail because they start with the idea, you know, mm-hmm. and they assume it's a great idea, and then they go and launch it. Mm-hmm. But actually, you start with... For kids, we start with what's the problem, and we turn that into a sensorial investigation, you know, discovery of like, how do you see the problem? How do you hear the problem? How do you feel the problem? If you were to sneak up on it, what's it doing when no one's looking, you know? (laughs) And so they have all this playful exercise. You go, okay, well, if that's the problem, why is it happening? Why do you think that happened when you saw that? Why do you think it's doing that? And then, of course, these two things, the best ideas are spontaneous. So if you put what and why together, it ignites and inspires, and we call it Biff, this idea of Biff, I've had this idea, you know, that moment of the spark or an aha moment of, I know how I can solve this. And so we get them drawing it and crafting it and putting words to it. And then we go, right, well, what about making it? And so we do this problem-solving worksheet, and then they go and, and then they go and use sticky tape and paper and boxes, and they make their idea. And, and we finish that exercise, that experience of applying their innate imagination to solve this problem. They come up with the most wild things, as you can imagine. <laughs> and then we get each kid standing up, or if they've been in pairs, they all stand up, and they present their creativity. And I think what we're talking about today, Chloe, is that is a key critical moment. because what adults find really hard to do is to give voice to the idea within the old constructs of 20th century brainstorming. You're sitting in a room with your boss there and others there, and you're supposed to be there for the purposes of generating idea. And all the mind can tell you is whatever I'm thinking about isn't good enough. I'm not going to say it because I'm not creative, you know, so fear and all these old beliefs about you and your creativity, shut it down. We get these kids standing up there and they've got their worksheet and they've got their little thing that they've played on. And it's the most wild outlandish, purely creative idea that some of it is stunning, as you can imagine. Yeah. And they boldly present their idea. And I finished that. This is how we came up with it way back when. The genesis of it is I say, you're such an ideas boy. You're such an ideas girl. You're such a biff kid. And the validation of them having given voice to that creativity within they just stand there. They're giants. You know, they are really creative giants. And I tell you, it brings tears, Chloe, every time just to see this joy and creativity being expressed. And you know that if we can continue to evolve that as they move through their education, yeah. we will literally develop them into their creativity. Absolutely, Mappy. So, so you have created Biff Kids, right? Yeah, so we created Biff Kids. So that was that was inspired by my daughter. I just I was grappling with this idea of an enterprise client of how to do this. You know, knowing the future of what was required and that creativity and the softest. You know, what we used to call the softer skills, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> uh, are are in fact the hard skills they would need. And one day I was struggling with it. I've been in the innovation industry for over twenty years, and yet as a parent. I didn't know how to. I mean, 
if you said to me, or say to any parent, right, now be now parent their creativity, you sort of go, well, I don't really know how, you know? And anyway, she, kids present their creativity all the time, as you know, and she presented something. She was four years old. She presented something, some idea she'd been working on or whatever. And I just spontaneously said, you're such an ideas girl. And that simple validation, and again, Chloe, this comes back to what we're talking about, giving words to what I was trying to say to her, to validate her, to recognize her, to see her creativity. Mm. Just that simple statement, you're such an ideas girl. She took that on and and it was the difference in her was palpable. And then ideas started flowing. So we did the same with her boy. And then I ended up turning it into a story. We called it ideas girl. We created this character, the character. You'd love the character. It's (laughs) ideas girl becomes like a superhero. And her superhero power is her ideas that solve problems. Love it. And they're silly problems. So anyway, we did Ideas Girl. We did Ideas Boy. We're creating stories. We're creating Biff Kids. You know, and I've got these creativity programs that we put into organizations around the world. So I'm sort of known for this in some way. I was approached by China, Chloe. The brief from China was that they wanted to, they had, they're getting deep, deep into technology and artificial intelligence and coding education. That's their thing. But Mm -hmm. they, they have alighted on the same insight that Cisco had, Mm -hmm. that the future jobs and skills will be not just coding and technology, but also create a problem solving. And so they came to me and said, look, can you create a story? around what we're trying to put into middle school that weaves in creativity and creative problem solving around this idea of technology and data. And first off, I thought it was a prank call and then I met them and it's, and it was indeed China. And then I was like, well, how many children are we talking? I mean, how many children do you think, Chloe? Oh, I, I am just excited to know. I have- 400 million. something like that this idea of middle so i was like that's it i'll just just do this and then i'm done you know what i mean (laughs) now you're talking oh what fun that's amazing it was amazing i spent nine months on it anyway i didn't i didn't end up giving it to them doing business in china is quite hard in terms of ip and getting a deal done but chloe that is the most exciting thing i'm working on because i've basically created an edutainment program Okay. So if you think about teens, and I know you've done lots of work with young people, mm-hmm. the idea of just trying to educate them just around creative problem solving could become really dry and boring and, and oh. it won't capture their hearts and minds. Exactly. But what if we could entertain them into mm-hmm. creativity and creative problem solving? Mm-hmm. And then what if we could edutain them? So within the entertainment, we embedded an education narrative. Uh-huh. And so we've created this extraordinary story. I wrote the story. It came to me in a complete universal download of a moment. It was like, I know what to do. So, so you're, yes, you're weaving in processes. So for, for young kids under 10, it is this idea of giving them a process they can learn once and then they can replicate it forever. It becomes an asset. For teenagers, it's much more about them starting to be creative and hold on to that sense of being. Yes. And so there you're in behaviors. So how do you capture uh, a teenager and, and, and have them hang on to that innate curiosity. How does empathy play out around this idea of insight and understanding to understand the context of problems and, and et cetera? And then what does collaboration look like as a behavior? How do I collaborate and bring my creativity to bear with others so that we can solve the problem better, faster? And then how do you put resilience around that? Because not every idea works, ideas fail. You know, they're so easily squashed. They're so fragile when they first come out. But also resilience on behalf of yourself. So when it fails, what happens to you inside? How do you develop resilience for your creativity so that come what may, you can keep going? Either decide to stay with the idea because you believe in it 
or have the resilience to be able to go, yep, I'm going to bend that and I'll trust that I'll come up with something else. Right. So that yeah. means having an absolutely core confident self. Core confident self. And your voice, Chloe, is, is, is so, so key to that. Oh, my God. Tell because, me. Because, you know, especially through how I see it, I know you, you bring that voice out through song, which is beautiful. And we should talk about what we're sort of thinking of doing with the young kids. Mm. But just for a moment, the teens... Mm. An idea is only realized, because ideas come as energy, don't they? We mm-hmm. feel them. They're somewhere deep inside. Exactly. And when they're spontaneously coming through to us, like I 100% believe ideas are meant for you. The ideas you're having, they could go to someone else. Mm-hmm. And they're meant for you because they're sort of part you and part not you. Mm-hmm. Because when, we, and, and when you start to unpick the neuroscience of when this happens, mm-hmm. your ego is not present. Mm-hmm. Because when your ego is present, you can't have ideas. Mm-hmm. When your ego is not present, you're almost channeling the ideas that are meant for you. Mm-hmm. Because we use language like, hey, something's just come, come to me. Oh, mm-hmm. I've just had a thought. You know, there were no fears. There were no worries. There were no concerns. Mm-hmm. This place of unlimited possibility realized in you as some energy. And it comes out through your voice as you start to try and put the words, to that flow of energy as it starts to come out that you start to describe this idea and you're bumbling and stumbling because it's a bit like this and I see it like that and it's sort of got this and it's going to do that. And as it comes out, you can train and educate young people to get really confident Mm. in allowing the space for that idea to come through and give words to it. I love that. And what you're making me realize is I'm thinking, I want to go back to school. (laughs) I want to go back to this school. You're you're speaking also of children, but you're also speaking of the hundreds of thousands of adults who were never allowed to be this creative as children. Do you know what I mean? Oh, 100%. I mean, we've we've got a couple of new things coming up. I've just finished this idea of parenting creative problem solvers. Oh, yes. When we're in schools, when we're there running the workshop, with the kids, you know, it's great. But mm. we know that if, we can, if we're going to scale that at all, we have to get to the teachers. Yeah. And, and we have to do two things with the teachers. First and foremost, we have to rebuild and renew their confidence in their own creativity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then we can give them the resources about how they can teach and facilitate creative problem-solving experiences. But what we're doing in the parenting idea, same with teachers, same with the resources, is we talk about little people, creativity, and we talk about big people and big people, creativity. <laughs> and we're sort of duping them to this idea that, do you know all the stuff we're teaching these little people and we want you to parent these little people? Mm. You know, it works for you as a big person too. And that big people can have big ideas too. Of course, this generates such pride from the parents in their children to see their children doing this. And oh, then- it really does. And you have to be really... You have to be really careful because it's not about saying you're a good or bad parent or telling you that you should do better parenting like this. Right. It's trying yeah. to just simply say one of the key things we need to do is prepare our kids for the future. Creativity is mm-hmm. going to be absolutely important for that. And here's some easy things you can do mm-hmm. to help parent your kids into their creativity. That's it. I would imagine the children, all the striking children coming out on Fridays also are just going to benefit enormously from this because, again, they're going to need these kind of skills to actually really harness uh, the anger and the rage and the frustration with the big people. It goes so deep, doesn't it? So you can first capture people around this idea of ideas. Mm. So the output is ideas. Mm. But I, you know, deep down, the reason I'm doing this is I fundamentally believe that creativity is your own personal gateway yes. to sort of who you are, 
why you're here, what idea or, 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 you know, that idea of walking to the beat of your own drum, what is your rhythm? The gateway, even for us adults, yes. to rediscover that truth is through that creativity because otherwise our minds are closed to that whole inner world. Right. Now, I know in your work, opening people up, you know, you talk about opening people up, opening them up through song. It's the same idea. Opening them through creativity yes. opens us to other deeper parts of ourselves. Yes, absolutely. And also to realizing, I think the most uh, critical thing that I've come up against, which is just so inspiring to watch it shift, is when a person realizes that the voice is not there to separate them from an audience where they're having to perform, where they're having to impress, where they're having to impress, inauthentically impress, I mean, that they are literally there because they're standing in the presence of who they truly are. And so the authentic voice naturally arises from there, you know, whether it's speaking or singing or a poetry or whatever it is. For me, it's a kind of seamless thread between the journey from silence through speaking into poetic communication, into song, into choral fields, that the whole thing is a seamless communication, really, which we've lost, you know, because we've created an education system that is always mainly about speaking, <laughs> you know, what we call speaking. But I mean, for me, you know, the way you're describing it is, and the way people are communicating is that's music. You know, they're using their voices, even though they're apparently speaking, they're speaking from somewhere else, from their soul realm. You know. oh, I love, yeah, I love what you're saying. This, and I 100 percent agree with you, Chloe. And, and you're so right because well, you've been proved over and over. This is a fantastic way into that truth. Mm. You know, I, I helped a friend who was working on that thing, sing up. That I know you you were sort of oh, uh, yeah. circulating back in the day. This idea that kids could sing the curriculum yes. as a way of you know both enhancing the learning experience, but also bringing themselves to it mm. in a new way. I wanted to pick that up with you because you and I had this incredible idea because I, I was saying to you that I run these creative workshops yes. with these young kids. And it is as much as it is a functional exercise to work through that process. It's also fun. It's very playful. It's very energetic. It is. Yeah. It really is wild or, or what we call adventurous creativity. You talked about this beautiful song you had, you sent it to me actually, but also this idea of the chakras and also around empathizing and understanding what we're trying to do with these kids, understanding where they're at. They are wired completely differently from us. They're much more open. Their little brains are zinging around and making the combinations and building out that repository of knowledge that they'll use. Mm. To further enhance that is to combine that creativity, problem solving and the energy of it with an exercise to awaken their energy. Because that's what I love about compassion and understanding. It both works to enhance our relationships, but it also points inwards on ourselves. Right. And so we talked about you coming down to the park and me getting some kids together. I'd love and, to. And you doing this chakra sort of exercise and translating it for kids as a sort of warm-up or energy boost before they do the creative problem solving. Yeah, well, I, I can really see now as I'm hearing you speak you know, how that would just tie in so beautifully because what that does is it connects the instinctual with the intuitive and the insightful mind because it joins up the three major centers of the body, the belly center, the heart center, and the head center. What's so fun is that it connects your sound. You can hear your sound as you make these movements that accompany each step of the way. So from step one in the root to step two into the pelvis, step three into the solar plexus, heart, throat, third eye, and the crown. Each of those steps is accompanied by an energetic hand gesture, which is based on the martial art, the compassionate 
energetic movement of something called Shintaido, which uh, basically was a very wild collaborator friend of mine called Masashi Minagawa. With his master, they went around, charged around the world and just uh, really explored all the different religious faiths and the different spiritual traditions, the mystical traditions, and found what were the most compassionate movements that could actually really enable absolutely anybody, not kind of martial artists or energy movement masters, but absolutely all and anybody, every single human being to understand their own energy system. You know, and when he saw me, when we first met in 1995, and I was just singing up and down the scale with people and just encouraging people to, to, to feel it. And I was working with the chakras because I'd been to India and I'd had this whole big experience. So I knew I was very awakened energetically and emotionally. Uh, and I also had this sense of this unchanging presence that you've referred to earlier, which I really, really would love to come back to this sense of something that is bigger than who I am. And I hear what you're doing with your kids is helping them to realize that there's a whole new form of leadership possible here, where it's not a kind of figurehead thing necessarily. Maybe sometimes it is. Somebody just leaps up like a fish out of the ocean and says, hey, let's do this. But essentially, it's not like driven by, okay, I am the leader. You're all going to do what I say. You know, what I hear you returning children to is that really most natural, field-based, community-based. It's exactly what's going on in our bodies right now. You know, 50 trillion cells are all now beating to their own individual drum, regarding whichever organs we're talking about, or the bones, the blood system, the circulation. Everything is interconnected. Everything is joining in. Everything is saying, yeah, we'll collaborate with you. It's all about collaboration, isn't it, basically? Yeah, there's so much to say that... <laughs> there's so much to say there's just a couple of things so let's log that idea because i just yeah. on that chakra experience and oh, yeah. the way you describe it i can imagine that we can do that chakra experience try that and then and then kids can sing the biff kids song as they're doing it and they know that they're it's almost like from grounding their creativity and they're going to start with what and then they're going to move into the higher order through the body and then boom there's going to be this moment of a of an idea you know i can see that really working and when you see the biff kids song tell me about that i've kind of got the lyrics of what i think it's going to be very simple but it's this idea that it just recognizes that they're literally standing there singing that i am a superhero my powers are solving problems i have ideas i am a biscuit i have better ideas faster you know it's that kind of approach Uh but if we can marry that up with an energetic exercise i think that'd be a wonderful way because then then it can scale you can video that and you can show other teachers hey this is how you can awaken it and and kids it would impact the teachers too while they're setting up the class to do that right well, it's very interesting because, in fact, one of my students shared this. We call it the seven sounds of love, basically. Yeah. And we shared it with nine-year-old kids. He did. Bill, this guy. He's brilliant. He just said, I just want to try this out on you, see what you think about this. And they, so they went through the movements and the sounds. They went all the way up to the top, all the way back down. These kids just looked at him and said, we know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we know what you're doing. And so then they basically taught him that the first one says, I am. The second one, the pelvis says, I open. The third one, the solar plexus says, I will. The fourth one, the heart says, I give. The fifth one, the throat says, I share. The sixth one, the third eye says, I serve. You know, and so on. And then, oh, that's right. They had, I think they had, I, I help and then I serve. And the top one, the crown, was I love. 
Oh. And so ever since then, I've used those. I've slightly just changed the, the top two. So the third eye we call I serve because that ties in with the incredible mudra, the diamond mudra that goes with that, which is very powerful where you're just literally holding this invisible sword in your hand and you've got these kind of laser light pouring out of your fingers. And then that goes into I surrender which is the back of the head, you know, with the, the hair spirals. Yeah. I had a very, very strong experience of that when I came back from India. It's not in the yogic teaching. They go straight for the crown. I find there's this kind of beautiful bridge from the third eye, which is the pineal gland, into the back of the crown of the head at the back there. Because the back of the head is so interesting and the back of the body is so interesting. And then the crown and so on. But that's that's a whole other question. Well, we'll pick that up. But what <laughs> you're saying, I mean, <laughs> yeah, another thing to pick up, but this idea of leadership, I 100% agree with you again. You know, this idea that there's the strong individual will lead us out of the mess. That's not the modern way. You know, mm-hmm. ideas are too complex. Things are changing too fast. Mm-hmm. They're only accelerating. That there is no one individual who has all the knowledge at any one time to lead us to anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's only going to happen through a collaboration of talents. And of course, from my world and creativity, to those who say I'm not creative, I go, you definitely are. If you have a brain, you are. It's not if you are, it's how you are. Lovely. And then if we can reconnect you to how you are, you can find your place mm-hmm. to add your own value in the innovation narrative whilst collaborating with others. Because we trust all these different manifestations of creativity to come together to create and make happen the new. And of course, that sort of brings us into this idea of the field. And what I'm fascinated by the field is not so much the ancient mysticism that have always talked about and described the field, Mm -hmm. but the new emerging quantum science that is proving all of that is true. And in the quantum, this is where I find it truly radical, Mm. is that the quantum literally says two things. Mm. It says, I am because you are. Mm -hmm. And that together, Mm -hmm. we are creating that which is creating us. And I can 100% get with that because it's saying that our universe is wholly and solely Mm -hmm. participatory. Yes. The universe only comes about because we participate in it and with it. Mm, Therefore, collaboration is not just a functional, rational exercise. Mm. At its deepest, it's a spiritual exercise. Mm. You got it. That we are all serving the greater whole, the greater good. Mm -hmm. And that when we're in that space, Mm -hmm. we inadvertently are being our own true selves at our highest selves, if I can say it that way. And what that means is when we walk away from that kind of collaborative experience, we are changed. We are uplifted. We feel energized, supercharged, excited, enthusiastic, just wanting to get on with what we've created, what that experience gave us. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what you've just referred to is what I call the trinity of experience, where you've got that awareness of the I and the we and the that where there's that sense of, I mean, I call it the discerning mind, the intuitive mind and the musical mind. There's something about the music, that roomy understanding of we have fallen into the place where everything is music, very much as you've been describing across our beautiful conversation here. And that is absolutely essential. So what we're speaking of here is this retraining of the ego. Somehow the understanding of this vast universal cosmic story 
that we're living in requires us to simply, as you say, and as you're doing so beautifully, it's just so inspiring to bring back those qualities of of wonder and reverence and joy and possibility, infinite possibility, right? Mm. And once the ego gets, it's what we say to the ego is you've just got a new job. It's not like we're trying to get rid of you, that having judgments isn't a good idea. We're just saying, just want to retrain you to just be a little bit more curious about what's going on here, a little bit more fascinated by what you're seeing, a little bit more encouraging with what you're seeing. (laughs) So that what's going on can actually just, as you've been describing so exquisitely, just naturally flow, naturally flow, unfold spontaneously, lovingly, compassionately, collectively, collaboratively. Yeah, that's perfect. Totally, uh, again, in agreement. You know, I've heard it called right-sizing the ego. I think that's so lovely because you're right. This this place, this this thin band of consciousness and what it's really brilliant at doing, of course we need it. We need that to do it. Yeah, it's not the only way of being. It's not the only way of thinking. And all its doubts and fears and worries are because it on its own doesn't have enough power right. to become all that you can be. Yes, yes. There's other places... That is you as well. And that's what I think is extraordinary, that if we can, you know, all this work of what I'm trying to do through this idea of creativity and innovation, at its most fundamental, all it's trying to do is give young people, Mm. kids, permission to keep that sense of wonder alive, that there's more to them than just the things I worry about and the things I'm scared about. And, of course, what our most childlike wisdom elders communicate to us is also just this ingredient of silence and the, and the power of silence and what part silence plays in this conversation, in the invocation of compassionate presence. Yeah. That is the inevitable outcome, isn't it, really? Well, yes, because, it, you know, in the neuroscience and in the, in the beta mind, when you start talking to people about it and you go, it's so noisy, they just nod in agreement. They know that you understand what they're suffering from because we all were there as well before I learned all of this and learned how to, how to deal with it and right-size it. And then, of course, when then if you can learn to get through that and deal with those things, and some of those can be really challenging, can't they? Mm-hmm. But when you get through that noise and surface it and clear it and let it go, then you can sit with yourself mm-hmm. in new ways in which opens a possibility for extraordinary new things to happen. Matt, we probably are coming to a close. Just for this conversation, we're obviously opening the door on something massive here. <laughs> Uh, And I am just so unbelievably inspired by absolutely everything we've shared together. And I just thank you so much. Oh, you too, Chloe. It's been an absolute joy. And and me too. The stuff you're doing around the voice and the singing and the way you come at it and why you're doing it, it's hugely inspiring. And I'd be be so grateful if we can find a way to do something amazing for these kids. First off, I just think it'd be a right laugh. We'd have such fun. Oh, I'm there. I'll show up. (laughs) Brilliant. And and thank you so much for having me on. It's been brilliant. Loved it. Well, I'm just so happy that we can share this conversation with others and continue the conversation at another time as well. So many, many thanks to you. 